Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Seminary. This podcast is a variety of audio resources from around Southeastern. To learn more about Southeastern, visit scbts.edu. It's a joy to be here with you, Southeastern family, and I'm looking forward to sharing what God uh, has for us this morning. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. As you're turning the air, I, I want to just kind of cast your mind towards a picture on the screen, one that will remind you, some of you, at least where you were when this happened. Some of you will remember fondly more of a textbook that you read in a history class. But on the screen, you see this famous picture of one of the greatest achievements in the history of mankind. You'll recognize that on July the 20th, 1969, uh, Apollo 11 landed on the moon. And Neil Armstrong famously, as the astronaut, uh, took the first steps on the moon and he, he made this, this great declaration. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. It was four days later that Neil Armstrong and the crew of Apollo 11 would return to Earth. And as they landed, they were actually able to make another declaration. In fact, they pronounced, mission accomplished. Mission accomplished. You know, around Southeastern Seminary, there's a lot of conversation about mission and what we're about and what God's about, what Jesus was about, and ultimately, what God is calling each one of us to be about on a daily basis. And when you think about the mission to the moon, one of the, 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 the kind of common parallels that you might think of and recognize is that there were thousands of people that invested in that mission. Tens of thousands of man hours. People who were, in fact, an astronaut who stepped foot on the moon to people who were in the shadows, who uh, you know, didn't get any public recognition, who simply went about doing their daily jobs, but yet their responsibilities were just as essential to making the mission happen. In the same way, God has called all of us to play a unique role in the mission, some in a more prominent position than others, and yet at the same time, each one essentially serving to accomplish this mission that God has given us. It's who we are. It's what we're about. We are the Great Commission Seminary. We're about the Great Commission. But why are we so passionate about this mission? It's because that's what Jesus was passionate about. Jesus was, a passion, was passionate about this mission. And perhaps it's seen in a, in a text that we don't commonly look to to see this, pass, to, to see this passion displayed. But in, in John chapter 17, perhaps we see it in one of the greatest displays in all of Scripture. You see, John 17 is what we commonly refer to as Jesus' high priestly prayer. We recognize in John's gospel that as he's been ministering and demonstrating through all these signs who he is and who he always has been as the eternal word of God, as he's demonstrated this, when you get to chapter 12, all of a sudden it goes into slow motion. In chapter 12, he begins to, uh, to be anointed uh, for what we know is coming. And, and in chapter 13, he washes the disciples' feet and uh, uh, shares a meal with them. And then in chapters 14 and 15 and 16, we see him give what we call the, the farewell discourse. And all of these chapters just happen in a matter of a, a few hours, and yet they take up such a significant portion of John's gospel. And then we find ourselves at the end of this, this discourse, as Jesus gives his final instructions to his disciples, we have this prayer recorded where, where Jesus expresses and exposes his heart before the Father. And in this prayer, 
it shouldn't surprise us that the central idea, the theme, that which Jesus is most passionate about is, in fact, the mission. The mission. It's what Jesus was about. It's what God's called us to be about. It's who we are as a seminary. But friends, can I challenge you a little bit? Can I challenge myself a little bit? That it can't just be what we're about collectively as a faculty, as a staff, as an administration, as a board of trustees, as friends of the school. No, no, it can't just be who we are collectively. It has to be who we are individually. That God has called each one of us to live on mission, to fulfill the mission. Well, how can we do that? Well, as we read Jesus' prayer, we're going to kind of take a brief journey through John chapter 17 this morning. What we're going to see is five great commission truths that elevate what the mission is, that gives us assurance that it can be and will be accomplished, and tells us what our role is in that. So if you found your place there in John chapter 17, let's begin reading together. We'll read a brief portion and then identify the truths as we go. The Bible says this, In John 17, beginning in verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. In these first few verses, we see the first great commission truth that we're called to embrace. First truth we can understand from this passage is that as we go, God's Son is glorified. As we go, God's Son is glorified. You know, the glory of God really is ultimately the goal of the Great Commission, to bring glory to a a redemptive, all-powerful, sovereign, holy, righteous God. As we look at Jesus' prayer, uh, the glory of God is woven throughout it as well. We see this common thread. In fact, the glory of God is mentioned eight times in the prayer, five times in these first five verses alone. It's all about the glory of God, and in particular, the glory of the Son. We know that according to Scripture, Jesus himself is the radiance of God's glory, the exact manifestation or representation of his nature. We know that it's Jesus who upholds the world and all of creation by the word of his power. And in Christ, we see the glory of God manifested. And as we complete and fulfill and participate in the mission, this is what we see, that as we go, God's Son is glorified. How so? Well, as we read these verses together, we can understand what this glory involves and how that's accomplished. Jesus, having spoken these words to his disciples, now begins to lift up his eyes and commune with the Father. What an intimate time that we get to eavesdrop on to hear the heart of our Savior poured out before God. And as he expresses it, listen to what he says, Father, the hour has come. You know, all through John's gospel, Jesus has told his family and his friends and his followers, my time has not yet come. The hour has not yet come. My time has not yet come. And yet here we arrive, the end of Jesus' earthly life, and he says, the time is now. The moment has arrived. This is the time from eternity past for which I was destined. 
We know in Galatians chapter 4, the Bible tells us that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son to be born of a woman, to be born under the law, that he might redeem those who were under the law. And now it has culminated in this point as Jesus prepares to go to the cross. He begins to explain to us how the son is glorified in the mission. The son is first and foremost glorified by the fact that he gave his life. He gave his life. The hour has come, and now he, he prays, glorify your son so that the son may glorify you. To speak of the, the glory of God, what we're describing is the, the manifestation and the magnification of the infinite perfection of God. In other words, who God is is on full display. And Jesus tells us through his mission and ultimately what he accomplished that never have we seen God's glory fully displayed like at the moment where he went to the cross. His death, burial, and resurrection revealed the very nature of God. And that's why he can pray, glorify your son. Reveal who I am as the Savior of the world so that I may reveal you as the redemptive, loving Father who sent me to the world. Glorify your son so that the son may glorify you. Watch what he does. Since you have given me authority over all flesh, as the one who clothed himself, as the word became flesh, as John told us earlier in his prologue, as the word became flesh, he now has authority as the one who re would redeem all flesh. The one you've given authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all you whom, whom you have given him. Jesus would give his life to secure eternal life for you and for me. In verse 4, he describes this work a little bit further. He says, I have glorified you on earth. I have made you known. I have revealed who you are through the work I have accomplished. I've accomplished all that you've given me to do. And as he lived this life, as he lived the sinless life, as he lived the perfect life, the sacrificial life, the saving life that he came to give for you and me, he glorified the Father. He revealed who he was by glorifying himself. And now he prays in verse 5 as he uh, cries out, he says, now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This pre-existent glory that Jesus had, where he now will reassume that he relinquished so that he might come and clothe himself in humanity and being found in appearance as a man, we know that he submitted himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name above every name, that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, Jesus was glorified that he might bring glory to God, and the message itself, the mission is found in the fact that he gave his life for us, and in that we see the beauty of God's character displayed. We see God's holiness we see God's justice, we see God's sovereignty, we see his love, we see all of these things mingled together in the perfect display of who and how God is. But Jesus is not just glorified in the fact that he gave his life, Jesus is glorified in that he gave us life. He gave us life. You see, verse 3 is central there as he describes this eternal life that he was securing through his death on the cross. He says, and this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. You see, Jesus came to give his life that he might give us life. And as he gives us life, we find life and life in the fullest. But when he describes this eternal life, we sometimes define it a little differently than Jesus does. You see, sometimes we define eternal life in destinational terms, where you'll go when you die, heaven or hell. That, that, that's a consequence. That's a result of eternal life, but that doesn't define eternal life. 
It's not just defined in destinational terms. Sometimes we define it in situational terms. We, we, we want Jesus to, to fix or redeem what's broken in our lives. We want him to fix the relationships or the difficulties or the challenges that we have. But that's a benefit of eternal life. That's not eternal life. He doesn't define it in destinational terms or in situational terms. Jesus defines it in relational terms. That they may know you, the one true and living God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus displays the glory of God, and as we go, God's Son is ultimately glorified. Jesus reveals himself to be the ultimate missionary in these verses. I don't know if you picked it up, but I'll point out one word that you're going to see repeated throughout this chapter. It's at the end of verse 3. He says that they may know the one true and living God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Six times in John 17, Jesus actually refers to himself as the one who was sent Sent is used one other time in John 17, and it's then used to describe what he does for us, that we are sent. Jesus was the ultimate missionary, and it's like our president reminds us frequently, it's because he came that we go. You see, God, the, the, Jesus is glorified as we go because it's not only that we're sharing the gospel and what Jesus has done, that he gave his life to give us life, but we are modeling who he is as the missionary himself, as the missional God. So as we go, we are embodying who Jesus was as the ultimate missionary who came for us. So as we go, God's son is glorified. There's a second great commission truth we see in this passage. It's found in the next few verses. Pick up with me in verse 6 as we continue on. He says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world, Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. And now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours and all yours are mine and I am glorified in them. I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name which you have given me. I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy in them fulfilled in themselves. Second great commission truth we see in this passage, not only as we go is God's son glorified, but as we go, God's children are fortified. God's children are fortified. Jesus now shifts the emphasis of his prayer from a reflection on his own ministry through the cross and his time on earth to now his children, his followers, his disciples. He unpacks, if you will, verse five, 4, the work that he came to do as he describes the work that he did. In verses 6 through 13, he describes this intimate relationship with his children. And as he describes this relationship with uh, his children, he describes them in such a way that helps us understand what we need to actually accomplish the mission. That we will need to be fortified, strengthened, rooted, grounded, and protected. He describes this fortification, this guarding, if you will, in a couple of different ways. And he tells us how we ultimately will experience that. First, he tells us that if we're going to continue on this mission, that we are strengthened by his word. We're strengthened by his word. As he describes in verse 6, that he's made known or manifested his name to the people. 
the people. He now begins to distinguish his people from the rest of the world, the people whom you have given to me out of the world. Over and over throughout this, this passage, Jesus prays for us, and he refers to God's people as a gift from the Father to the Son. He says, yours they were, and you gave them to me. In other words, the Father foreknew from all eternity past those who would trust in Christ and those who he had secured through the foreknowledge and the ordained death, burial, and resurrection of Christ as our sacrifice. He secured our eternal destiny. And Jesus says, you have given them to me, and they have kept your word. It was through the obedience to God's word that his disciples and his children were truly revealed. They were displayed to be his children. He says, now they know. You hear the certainty there, the assurance that they have. They now know that everything that you have given me is from you. And I have given them, watch this, the words that you gave me. What were those words? Well, certainly it's the, all the encompassing body, uh, the corpus, if you will, of all that Jesus taught. But we hear in John chapter 6 in particular, when Jesus has kind of given some hard truths of what it's going to be like to, to be his disciple and what it takes and what it requires, and all of a sudden, people begin to walk away. They begin to walk away, and Jesus looks at his disciples, and he says, hey, are you going to leave me too? And what does Peter respond? Peter says, no, where else can we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. It's in those words that we find security, assurance, comfort, and confidence. He says they have kept your word. Now they know with certainty. They have heard the words that you gave to me, and now they have received them, and they have come to believe in truth, to be strengthened and grounded in the truth of God's word, of Jesus' assurance, of Jesus' promises. He says, I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. There it is again that God sent his son. Jesus says in these words we can be grounded, and ultimately in verse 13, as we kind of conclude this second portion, he says, I have, uh, I, now I'm coming to you, and these things I have spoken in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. What he has spoken, his word that we have received, that we have believed, that we now know in truth, gives us the confidence, gives us the assurance, and strengthens us to move forward in the mission. We're strengthened by his word, but we're not just strengthened by his word. He also reveals through this prayer and his petition that we are shielded by his hand. We're shielded by his hand. Back with me in verse 9, he, he makes this declaration, I am praying for them. I just want to press pause right here because quite honestly, this phrase has captured my heart in recent weeks. To hear our Savior actually express, I am praying for them. Friend, I don't know what you're going through today. I don't know what your life is like. I don't know what experiences that you fear or even feeling at this moment. But I want you to know something. The Bible says in Hebrews 7 that he always lives to make intercession for us. And what we often express is kind of a sentimental affirmation of friendship and appreciation. I'm praying for you. Jesus says as a legitimate intercession, I'm praying for them. We have the assurance through what Jesus has provided for us and what he intercedes for us on our behalf. And listen to the prayer as he shields us with the Father's hands. He says, listen, I'm not praying for the world. I'm praying for the ones that you have given me. These are your children, all for they are yours, and all mine are yours, and yours are mine. They're eyes, and I am glorified 
in them. There we see the mission that Christ is in fact glorified as we're going. But he says, I'm no longer in the world. He already is looking ahead to his departure. He says, but they are in the world, meaning that his disciples are going to remain in the world. I am coming to you, he says. And then he petitions, Holy Father. Six times we have in John 17 where he appeals to the Father. Twice it's modified by a descriptive attribute of the Father. Each time the attribute itself is related to the very petition he's offering. Holy Father is appealing to the infinite perfection of God. Based on the infinite perfection of his love as our Father. Holy Father, keep them in your name. Jesus has appealed to the infinite perfection of God that he would protect us, that he would preserve us, that he would keep us in his name. We bear his name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. And he says in verse 12, while I was with them, I did that. I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them. He says, I didn't lose a single one except the one that was destined to be lost that the scripture might be fulfilled. What we see in Jesus' prayer here is what he described in John 10 when he described his ministry as the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep and the sheep that hear his voice and that follow him. He says, they are mine. I have given them life and no one can snatch them out of my hand. And my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one can snatch them out of his hand. Friend, as we live on mission, we have the assurance that God will preserve our life, eternal life. And while we may not be protected from every difficulty in fact we're assured that we will experience those things we have the ultimate assurance that he will preserve and protect us we are shielded by his hand plain and simple as we go god's children are fortified why because we believe in him and we belong to him you are his you are kept as his possession you are treasured by him so much so that he sent his son to die for you and therefore you can have full assurance that he will watch over you There's a third great commission truth we see in this passage. Not only do we see that as we go, God's son is glorified and God's children are fortified, but we see even more as he continues through his prayer. Pick up with me now uh, in verse 14 as he describes, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth. Third great commission truth we see in this passage is that as we go, God's people must be sanctified. God's people must be sanctified. To be sanctified literally just means to be set apart. We use it to describe uh, the ongoing process of being conformed to the likeness of Jesus, our Savior. But we have to understand that this process of becoming like him also uh, likens us to him, not just in our character, but in our responsibility. In other words, we're, we're not just set apart from something, we're set apart for something. And he describes that in these verses How do we know what we're set apart and sanctified, called to do? Well, he first describes that we're called to be set apart from the world. If we're going to actively actively and effectively engage the world, we have to be set apart from the world. This doesn't mean that we remove ourselves from any worldly interaction, 
No, in fact, he's describing simply that we separate ourselves. We distinguish ourselves in character from the virtues and values of the world, that we are not of the world. And he describes that explicitly in these phrases. As he describes it in verse 14, he says, I've given them your word, and our obedience to his word is what distinguishes us from the ways of the world. We're not of the world because we live by the word. The world has hated them. As we obey God's word, it sets us up as targets. In fact, we have to endure the hostility that would be directed towards God, towards Christ, towards his word is now directed towards us as we embody those things. He says it's simple to understand we're not of the world any more than Jesus was of this world. As he describes that, he then says, I'm not asking that you remove them. No, that would defeat and undermine the mission itself. Don't take them out of the world. Just keep them from the evil one. Protect them fortify them, establish them. We have to be set apart from the world in this way. We're not of the world. What does this look like? Well, we have to evaluate our own character, that we would, in fact, be effectively distinguished, that when the world looks at us, they would see the difference and distinction between us and them. Not because of a pious, self-righteous attitude. Not that we would, in fact, uh, somehow uphold our, our religiosity and somehow, uh, because of our political stances or these types of things, that somehow we would distinguish ourselves. No, it's because of our own lives that we would be holy. That we would be set apart from sinfulness. And quite honestly, within the church, and even perhaps your heart, even my own heart today, we have to recognize that there are areas of, of sin in our lives that camouflage us and actually blend us within the world, not distinguish us from the world. Perhaps we could just understand this important significance as it relates to our sinfulness that sanctifying and being set apart from the world is not as much about a radical departure a casual departure from radical sin but a radical departure from casual sin that we would see that our lives can't blend into the world with the way we carry ourselves the way we talk the way we commune the way we engage the way we interact no but that we would be distinct from the world and that we would take sin seriously the way jesus took sin seriously jesus was not into self-mutilation but he said if your right eye is causing you to sin pluck it out if your right hand causes you to sin cut it off that you would deal radically with casual sin we oftentimes just feel like because we've made great leaps and we're not involved in the the more egregious obvious sins of the world that somehow we have been formally and officially sanctified but that work is ongoing in our hearts and lives we have to uncover the idols of our hearts that uh they, they kind of are screaming out for the affections of the world and the world's crying for our affections in return john in his first epistle would actually clarify it that way in first john two fifteen: do not love the world or the things of the world for all that's in the world the lust of the eyes the lust of the the, 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 the flesh and the pride of life, those aren't from the Father. They're of the world. The world, along with its lust and desires, is passing away. But the one who does the will of God, he abides forever. We must separate ourselves from single, uh, sinfulness. We must be set apart from the world. We're not just set apart from the world. We're sent out into the world. You see, this separation, this distinction, is so that we might engage effectively. We're separated or set apart from the world so that we might send out, be sent out into the world. And in verse 17 and 18 and 19, he describes that we're sanctified, set apart, based on the truth. His word is truth. And as we stand on the timeless truth of his word, 
Just as God the Father sent him into the world, he sends us into the world. He says, for this reason, for their sake, I consecrate myself. I lay down my life as their sacrifice so that they also may be sanctified and set apart in the truth. God has called us to live on mission, and that requires us to engage, not retreat. Not retreat. If we're going to fulfill the mission, as we go, God's Son is glorified, and as we go, God's children are fortified, and as we go, God's people must be sanctified. Let's look at the next few verses and see the next Great Commission truth there in verse 20. He begins to petition now, not just for his disciples then, but all future disciples He says in verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in them, I in you, so that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they all may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. These verses, what we see is that as we go, God's people, God's church must be unified. Unity is essential for the mission. He mentioned it back up in verse 11 that he prayed that they may be one even as we are one. And here he revisits it several times. In verse 21, he says that they may be one. He describes what that unity looks like as a father is uh, you are in me and I in you that they also may be in us. He then revisits it again in the very next verse that they verse they may be one even as we are one. And then in verse 23 he says it again that they may become perfectly one. We have to understand what this unity is and it's grounded in the essential unity that we share as believers that we are in fact in Christ. We are spiritually one. We are essentially one. And as we share in that essential oneness, that we would begin to share in a functional oneness. That that essential unity would translate into a functional unity. That we would be about the same thing. And this unity that he describes here is essential for us to accomplish the mission. As we go, God's church must be, in fact, unified. How can we functionally unify together? Well, we must first be unified in our goal. The goal that Jesus prays, he reiterates multiple times. You see it in verse 20 as he describes, he's not just praying for only his disciples then, but all those who will believe in me through their word. You see the goal embedded there that the message and the mission would continue through these disciples into us, down through the generations into the church today. He then describes it in uh, verse 21 in the same way that he says, that the world may believe. That's the goal. That others would believe, that the world may believe. And then again in verse 23, so that the world may know. We must be unified in the goal. The goal, above all else, to bring glory to the Son is that the world may believe. We must be unified in the goal. This is how Paul challenged and prayed for the Philippians. You recall in Philippians 1.27 that he challenged them to walk worthy of the gospel. So whether he was able to come or remain absent, he would hear that they are striving in one mind, in unison, together for the sake of the gospel. Did you hear that unifying language? And did you hear the common goal for the sake of the gospel that the world may believe? We must be unified in our goal. This unity, this functional unity also is that we must be unified in the gospel, the message itself, right? In verse 21, he said that the world may believe what? That you sent 
me. Then in verse 23, he says it again, that the world may know that you sent me and you loved them even as you loved me. The gospel, the message, that we don't confuse the message, but that we protect and guard the gospel, the good news, summarized in the holiness of God, the sinfulness of man, and the forgiveness of Jesus. The simple truth of the gospel, that he has loved us and he sent Jesus to be that mediator that could provide for us the forgiveness that God's holiness demanded because of our sinfulness. That's the gospel. That's what we have to be about. We have to be about the same goal that the world may believe about the same gospel. The mission is essential. It requires us to be unified. What this means is that we can't allow our preferences or perspectives to divide us, but we must center around and rally around the truth of the gospel. The fifth and final truth is seen in the final three verses. Pick up with me in verse 24. He says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them only as we go as God's son glorified and his children fortified his people must be sanctified and unified and ultimately as we go we have the assurance that God's name will be magnified God's name will be magnified. You know, as you see these verses in Jesus' prays, he says that, that the world, they don't know, but these, they know you, I know you, and these know you. He says in verse 25, I have made known, in verse 26, excuse me, I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known. How will he continue to make his name known? It's through his people, through our perseverance, through our endurance, through our persistence, that we stay on task, that we stay about the mission, that we stay engaged in what he has called us to do. The world may believe that God sent his son because he loved them. How will we continue to persist and persevere? It's found kind of in the assurance that he provides by the truths of these verses. First, we have the assurance that one day we will dwell in his presence. One day we will dwell in his presence. In verse 24, he prayed, Father, I desire. I'm expressing in, in some ways Jesus' last will and testament. This is my will. This is what I desire. I desire that they also, whom you've given me, may be with me where I am, that they may see my glory that you've given me that I had before the foundation of the world. He's now returned to that same preexistent glory we saw in verse 5. And we have the assurance based on Jesus' prayers based on the price that Jesus ultimately paid on the cross, that we will one day be with him. We will one day be with him. So when we face hostility, when we face resistance, as we engage the world around us, we have the assurance that this is not all there is. And there is a kingdom that has been secured for us. And we have those eternal promises and assurance that we, in fact, will one day dwell with him. And therefore, we can persevere looking forward to those Revelation 5 and 7 scenes in heaven where all the nations are gathered around the throne giving praise to the Lamb, the one we serve, the one who came to save. We've given ourselves to this mission so that his name will continue to be magnified and we persevere because we know that one day we will dwell in his presence. Perhaps you can remember the familiar hymn, Think on Those Things. 
What a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see. When I look upon his face, the one who saved me by his grace, when he takes me by the hand and leads me through the promised land, what a day, glorious day that will be. One day we will witness and worship the glory of the Son. We will dwell in his presence. But the other assurance we have is that not just then, but even now, we can dwell on his promises. We can dwell on his promises. He's going to make his name known. He's going to be with us through the mission. He says that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. The assurance we have is that Jesus will not leave us or forsake us that he will be with us always. And he communicates it here through the person and promise of the Holy Spirit that he described in the farewell discourse, that he will not abandon us, but he will, in fact, empower us to go and to live on mission and to fulfill this mission, that his name might indeed be magnified. And because of that, we have all the promises of God that are yes in Christ Jesus, because we have Jesus, the Holy Spirit, dwelling within us, he in us. Because we can dwell on these promises, we can persevere and accomplish the mission. As you think about who we are, what we're called to do, we know that as we go, God's Son is glorified. And as we go, in fact, God's children are fortified. He will protect us and watch over us. We know that if this is going to be accomplished, as we go, His people must be sanctified. His church must be unified. And if we'll do that, we have the promise that as we go, his name will be magnified. You know, the final thought on Jesus' prayers, it challenges us from the, the Great Commission perspective. Perhaps you could even see the imprint of some of the other Great Commission passages, even Matthew 28 on John 17, is the authority that he had in the first few verses was the same authority that he spoke of recorded in Matthew 28. That all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And that as he commissioned his disciples there to go, he sends us through this prayer. That he might send us into the world. To do what? To assimilate others that the world may believe. Baptizing them and teaching them according to what? The word that saturates his prayer and that solidifies and stabilizes us. And then we have the assurance that yes, behold, he will be with us even to the end of the age. He will be in us. So here's the question you and I have to answer this morning. And it's a glorious privilege if you understand it this way. Will you be the answer to Jesus' prayer? Jesus prayed for us to be on mission. We have the opportunity to be the answer to Jesus' prayer as we simply obey the Great Commission. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the privilege of joining you in your mission. We thank you, O God, for Christ and the sacrifice he made to give us life by giving his life. And Father, as we submit ourselves to this mission, I pray that you would, in fact, fortify us, sanctify us, unify us, that your name may be glorified and magnified as we persevere and fulfill the mission. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Consider giving to Southeastern Seminary online or visiting us for a preview day. For information on how to give or sign up for a preview day, visit scbts.edu.